Think about just for a moment, still on my diversion here, think about just for a moment the passion of the father as he spoke to the son. Why do you suppose the father for the first time broke the silence of heaven, at least as far as the record is concerned, and spoke to the son at the point of the baptism when he began his three years of public ministry? He didn't say a word, at least as the record has it, for the first 30 years. Wasn't he pleased with the first 30 years of Jesus' life? Well, of course he was. Jesus didn't do anything wrong, ever. you imagine meeting a perfect teenager? I mean, Jesus was a perfect 16-year-old boy. You imagine having an eight-year-old kid that never did anything wrong in your home? When we had family devotions, when I wasn't using the overhead projector, um, one of the things we used to do when our kids were little is we would um, take turns impersonating biblical characters, and the other members of the family would have to guess who the person was impersonating. That was one of our little skit kind of devotional things. And one day, it was Kenny's turn. He was about seven or eight, I suppose, and... He went out of the room to get in character, you know, and he came in, in character, and we had to guess who he was as he impersonated some biblical character. And he came in just kind of snorting and storming and said, I hate being in this family. It's terrible. I hate being in this home. can't stand having, you know, this brother of mine. And he's, you know, the other day I stole a buck from dad, and I didn't think that, you know, he'd ever miss it, but he did. And he came to me and he said, son, did you steal that dollar? And I said, no, dad, I didn't steal a dollar. And dad said, I know you did, son. And it's like, oh, I'm caught again. And we couldn't guess who he was talking about. Who's he talking about? Answer, the brother of Jesus. Dad, I didn't take it. Jesus did. No, son, he doesn't do that. <laughs> you know. Imagine a kid that never sassed his mom once. I mean, that's something. Was the father pleased as he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature among men? Was the father pleased? Of course. He didn't shout then, though. What in the Son provoked the Father to shout for the first time in Mark chapter 1, the baptism, other accounts? Well, we're told in the scriptures, and I think the Luke account it is, that when the Son, when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, said he was praying, and at the point as he came out, he was praying, that's when the Spirit came, that's when the Father shouted. I wonder what he was praying, we're not told, but I wonder if we can piece it together and suggest this, that when the Father and the Son and the Spirit got together so many years before and said, let's make people who can enjoy the kind of community we enjoy, let's get people to enjoy the depths of our character, to to participate in the nature that we have so they can actually have Trinitarian community and just have the blast, the fun, the joy that we're having. Let's make people like that. They made Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve sinned. And by sinning, what they essentially said to God was, we don't think you're all that good, tell you the truth. Eve basically said, giving into the devil's uh, uh, temptation, she was deceived. And she apparently said something like this. She said, I think there's a good outside of you that you're not providing, and I'm going to go for it. Adam wasn't deceived, so apparently he knew there was not a good outside of God. But now he has a fallen wife, and he had never seen how God deals with fallen people. So I rather think he was looking at God and saying, I wonder if there's enough goodness in you to deal with this mess. I'm not sure. I think I'd better stick with her. Pardon me. How did God feel? How do you feel as a parent when your child looks at you and doesn't think that you really care deeply? Your child doesn't trust your goodness. Your heart isn't for them. How did God feel? From that point on, I believe God committed himself to revealing his goodness. Oswald Chambers has put it this way, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. And so God set about at that point to reveal his goodness. How do you reveal what you're like? Well, you don't just talk about it, you express it 
As somebody said, when you want to send a message, wrap it up in a person and send him. And so God says, I'm going to send somebody to let people know what I'm like. And then he looks down through the history of time, all through the Old Testament, and says, all right, who's available? Well, there's Moses. He's a pretty good choice. Well, he did hit that rock, you know. That's not a whole lot like me. There's David, good man, except for the matter of adultery and murder. There's Daniel, good man, but not quite good enough. Who can I send? And then Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism and says, here I am. And the Father rends open the heavens and says, I love you. Because when people see you, you're the exact image of the invisible God. They'll know what I'm like. And when you're lifted up, all men will be drawn. Do you have a feel for the passion of the Father? Jesus said in John 17, 25 or 26, he said, I've come in order that the love, Father, you have for me may be in them. Think of the love the Father has for the Son. And that love is supposed to be or could be or is in us the same love the Father had for the Son when he ran open the heavens after all those years of looking at all the candidates to make himself known. And now he sees Jesus. He says, you're my son. And just to get a little feeble picture for what that was like, it's still my diversion. Forgive this. A little feeble picture of what that was like. When our older boy was young, he was, um, and he proved himself, proved himself very quickly to be a very fine athlete, a very unusual gifted athlete. And as a young boy, age 10, 11, 12, he had very blonde hair, almost white, and lots of it. And one day at a soccer game in Boca Raton, Florida, we were living, a little boys' soccer league. I was at a game one morning, Saturday morning, and my boy was out playing in the field with all the rest of the kids, and I was standing on the sidelines by myself, and next to me there were three or four other men who were fathers of other kids on the same team, and I didn't know these guys, and they were chatting amongst themselves, and I was watching the game by myself, and at one point in the game, all the kids were down at the wrong end of the field from my perspective, and just jumping around and kicking and pushing and shoving and do all the things little kids do in a soccer game, and all of a sudden, out of this little band of active, thriving kids, one boy emerged with the ball, and he had white hair, and he began to run down the field very fast controlling the ball perfectly all the way down. The members of the other team were running after him, trying to get him to stop the ball, to steal the ball, and to get him to stop moving toward their goal. And this boy with the white hair blowing in the wind just moved like the wind down the field, maintaining the ball in perfect control, outrunning them with the ball. They, without a ball, couldn't catch up. He got to the goal, and the goalie was there like this, and this boy with the white hair fainted this way, fainted that way. The goalie was bewildered, and he kicked the ball and scored a goal. And I heard these three guys next to me, as they watched the whole thing, say, one of them said, who's that kid? Yeah. <laughs> Modesty is so tough. So I took a step toward them and I said, um, that's my boy. And then I added, genetic show. That's what the father said to the son. That's my boy. Watch the way he lives. Everything he does will reveal me. Genetics show he's just like me. You want to see what I'm like? Watch Jesus. It's my son. And Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism. Father, I'm ready to reveal you. And the father said, that's my boy. I love you. Now, what does it mean to be possessed of that kind of passion, that kind of Trinitarian relating, and to pour it into another, and to believe that it's the very act of pouring, that it's the glory that's within us? And let me suggest what that might be. I believe the glory the Father gave the Son in the Incarnation was an opportunity he didn't have until he became incarnate, and that was to exhibit the character of God in the midst of human community. Until he was incarnate, he couldn't do that. 
But now he had the glory where he was, in fact, the Son of God, the eternal God, now an incarnate form of the God-man, and now he had the glorious opportunity to make the Father known by the way he related. And Jesus now says, Father, I've given them that same glory. They now have it within them to reflect the character of God in the way that they relate. They can actually relate to other people paracritically. They can pour. There's something in the core of their beings that, when it's, when it's released, can make a profound impact on other people. Now, what I want to do for the last few minutes, what I want to suggest to you is that what needs to be central in our thinking as we contemplate this elder shepherd role is how do we release the glory? What does it mean for you and I to become glorious? As we chat with somebody who's ready to leave their spouse for the other woman. Maybe a Christian who's caught up in this terrible temptation. On the way down in the car on uh, Friday, Rachel and I listened to a tape from a man that we haven't seen for 11 years, 10, 11 years, and haven't heard from in about six years. (laughs) A man who was a student of mine came to our program some years ago. A wonderful man, a very close friend of mine, was a a pastor in another country, and he came with his wife and three children to study in our program. The very first year we had a counseling program at Grace Seminary, Indiana, and um, came with his wife and his children. We became close friends, and we invited him back for a year to serve as an intern. He came and um, did a wonderful job for us, became a very close buddy, one of the godliest men I know, and the tape explained why he divorced his wife and left her for the other woman. And we knew that had happened, and I had called him when I heard about the movement in these directions, called him a number of years ago from this country to another, and said, um, if you and your wife would like to fly over, I'd love to get together with you and and chat, because I'm really burdened for you. And he said in the tape that we listened to two days ago, he he said, Larry, that offer meant the world. And I feel so ashamed they didn't take you up on that. But then he said something that, that troubled me. And he didn't say it at all critically of me, but I heard it in a way that reduced me to, to, to a recognition of failure, perhaps. He said, Larry, you, you sent a follow-up letter, and his whole mood was one of saying, thank you for the grace you extended. Thank you for being a dispenser of grace, was essentially what he said. But then he said a comment, just in passing, that just stung a bit, and I don't think he meant it to sting at all. But he said this, that the letter that you sent me, you began to probe. You asked some very probing, penetrating questions, and, and I guess I finished the letter and I felt very unsafe. And he said, and all the people that I was around back in my home environment, as the news became clear that there was difficulty between my wife and me that was fairly significant, nobody entered into our lives. Everybody avoided us. And as the separation took place, before there was any uh, adultery or any remarriage, there was just real difficulty in the marriage, he said that I was the one who left my wife, but when she went to different church functions, nobody would talk to her. And he said, I went to one person to make known my burdens and said that I really have a burden here. And the person who I went to in confidential concern and other little tiny digression, you understand that some survey was done a while ago as to why people don't go to their pastors or people in the church, why they go to professionals as opposed to pastors. Number one reason, lack of confidentiality. Second reason, cliches. Pastors have no time. Professionals will schedule an hour, how they make a living. 
They honor confidentiality pretty well, better than the Christian community. That's a shame. They don't give cliches. They wrestle honestly. That's, by the way, what does the good. Well, why can't we do that? And I thought, in that letter that I sent to him six years ago, whenever it was, I don't no time, obviously, but in that letter, I, I remember my mood was one of, I, I've got to fix something here. I believe I failed. I didn't jump up and down for that guy. I was looking to find where I could fix this guy, that I'm a therapist. And he heard that and said, I don't feel safe, and he never contacted me, and now they're divorced. I don't know. Could it have been different? I'm not going to beat myself in the head for that, but I'm sure going to think about it. I'm not going to live in guilt over that, but I'm sure going to ponder that. And I'm sure going to say, I would like to become the kind of elder shepherd that I can see way off in the horizon and see so little of in me, but I'd like to become the kind of person that understands something of the glory that Jesus has put within me and the new covenant reality of the Holy Spirit within me and the new heart within me that actually has an appetite for good, that actually is inclined toward love, that actually, if I walk in the Spirit, releases the fruit of the Spirit, and I could be the kind of guy that actually relates perichoretically, and when people watch me live and the people watch me relate, they might get a taste, so that's what he's like. Boy, I'd love to be that way, and it's so easy not to be. And I think I've spent most of my professional career depending on something other than what I've just described. And I want to change that so badly. So my question is, how do I change that? What does it mean to release the glory? What does it mean to relate perichoretically? Let me give you a simple little principle and then talk about it for a few minutes and let you go. simple principle is this, that the richest vision of what God can do, the richest vision of what God can do often grows out of the deepest disappointment with how little he sometimes appears to be doing. The richest vision of what God can do often grows out of the deepest disappointment with how little he sometimes appears to be doing. What I'm going to suggest to you is the glory is released primarily through confusion. Through wrestling with God, through struggling with his character, with his character, The richest vision of what God can do often grows out of the deepest disappointment with how little he sometimes appears to be doing. And that vision, the vision of what God really is up to, which grows out of those times when he seems to be up to nothing. The vision of what he really is up to, I'm going to suggest, releases the glory. Now let me explain. Look at people who have been in ministry for years and what do you see? Look at people who have gotten beyond the excitement of starting out. And I would suggest, as you look at people who have been in ministry for years, the seasoned veterans, one of three things is true, typically. This is a little bit of a caricature, but one of three things is true. Either they've lost their vision and, what's the phrase, dropped their bundle? How does that go? Either they've lost their vision and with it their motivation usually because things have been so unexpectedly difficult and their dreams have been shattered. That's one thing that happens a lot. A second thing that happens with people who have been in ministry for a long time is they've settled into a very narrowed, limited vision that allows them to be comfortable and feel competent. They've settled into a rigid program, formula, 
that they are competent to handle, and they stay within that and feel very threatened by anybody who takes away the structure that allows them to proceed with effectiveness. And that's the rigidity and the lack of growth that we hear so often spoken of among older folks. So either they lose their bit of vision, and with it their motivation, because dreams have been shattered and life has been too unexpectedly difficult, option one, option two, they've settled into a narrowed, limited vision that allows them to be comfortable and to feel like they're doing a lot of good when they're doing a tenth of what they could. Or thirdly, they've survived profound struggle, disappointment, pain, by finding a richer and more compelling vision of what God can do than they ever knew before. They've survived the struggles of life, the profound disappointments, the hurts that some of you this week have shared with Rachel and me, and we feel very grateful for your openness with us. They've survived profound pain that no one who just gets married thinks they're ever going to face. Our daughter-in-law married five years. We're chatting with she and her husband, Marson, the other day, and she said, it's really hard being married, isn't it? And of course we said, of course not. Everything's wonderful. Just, you got problems? What's the matter with you? Rachel and I have never had a problem. We're doing just fine. She's repented. We're okay. <laughs> They've survived profound disappointment that they never expected by finding a richer, more compelling vision of what God can do and what he's up to than they ever knew before. I want to illustrate that for you in a very obvious way. Take your Bibles and turn for a moment to Ezra chapter 3. Let me illustrate this, how this glory can be released so we can become the perichoretic elder shepherds who pour. That's what I'm after. Ezra chapter 3, you're familiar with the passage where the foundations of the second temple had been laid in Ezra 3 and verse 10. The um, captivity is over now, the remnant is back in the land, and the temple is being rebuilt. And in verse 10 of Ezra chapter 3 we read, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets, the Levites, sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But, verse 12, here's the key. Many of the older folks, you know the passage, don't you? Many of the older priests and Levites, family heads, cried their eyes out. They had seen the former temple and saw that this was pathetic in comparison. Just wasn't much. Straggly bunch of Jews building a feeble little thing. They had seen Solomon's temple. And they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sounds of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Who was it that cried? The old folks. I suggest that we who are getting older can cry as young people never can. And it's the root to the release of glory. Let me tell you why I believe that. Turn to Haggai. I always take five minutes to find a two. Haggai chapter two. And as you've turned many pages in your Bible, you haven't turned much time. The same time frame is being described. The Jews are back in the land. It's a couple years later. 
And in chapter 2 of Haggai, we're told this in the 21st day of the seventh month, which, by the way, was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. A little bit of setting I want to give you here. It's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a day set aside for, rejoice, for rejoicing over the fertility of the land of Canaan. It was a day for joy. But the crops that year had been terrible. And so people were having a hard time, no doubt, rejoicing because the crops that year, we're told in Haggai 1, had not been good. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. And listen to what he says. Here's people who no doubt are having a little hard time rejoicing because Canaan wasn't yielding a great deal at this point. And the whole point of this day was to rejoice in the abundance of harvest. And the Lord says in verse 2, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. Whenever you read the Old Testament, you have no idea how to pronounce the name. Say it quickly and keep going. Nobody else knows. Governor of Judah to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Remnant to the people and ask them, listen to what he says in verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Who are we speaking to, the old folks or the young folks? What does he say to the old folks? The young folks are laughing. The old folks are crying. Who's more spiritual? I don't want to put it that way, but who's more in touch with certain things? Who maybe has something that can be released that's deeper, that can be given to the body of Christ in richer ways? Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? And that was what the Lord would do. How does it look to you now? It's like he's rubbing their face in it. He's saying, you're already weeping. I want you to weep more. Because the house that you're looking at now is nothing in comparison with the house that you've seen before. Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, what does he say? Be strong. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Work, I'm with you. It's what I covenanted with you. When he came of Egypt, my spirit remains among you. Look, I know it looks pretty bad. It looks like I'm doing nothing. It looks like that what's happening here is absolutely unimpressive. And here you are, older people, and all your dreams for what God was going to do have just been dashed. It isn't happening the way you thought. Oh, there's some good things here and there. Yeah, the temple's being laid, the foundation. We're out of captivity. Yes, it's wonderful. But you know what I thought was going to happen just isn't happening. I'm not seeing... I'm seeing some fruit, but not all the fruit that I wanted. I'm, I'm sort of disillusioned, if you want to know the truth. And God, rather than rebuking them for the disillusionment, almost deepens it but then says, let me tell you what's ahead. Then he talks about, in a little while. Don't you love the Lord's sense of timing? In a little while. What does he mean by that? That difficult passage in 1 Peter 5.10, after you've suffered for a little while. What does he mean by a little while? When I say a little while, I mean, you know, 10, 20 minutes. He sometimes has years in mind. You heard the story about the guy that came to God and said, God, is it true that a day with you was as a thousand years. And God said, well, yeah, I wrote that. And everything I said is true. So, yeah, that's right. A day with me is no different than a thousand years. And the fellow said, well, can I ask a second question? Sure. Is a nickel to you no different than a million dollars? And God said, well, I didn't say that, my word. But, yeah, I mean, nickel, million dollars, all the same to me. So the young fellow said to God, well, can I have a, can I have a few cents? To which God said, yeah, in a few minutes. In a little while. These weeping older folks were characterized by at least three things. They were aware of how their best efforts failed to produce what they most longed for. The temple that was being built wasn't what they envisioned. They were aware of how their best efforts fell short. That was characteristic of the weeping older folks. They also kept moving in spite of the discouragement though they needed strong exhortation to do it because God had to say, be strong, I'm with you. They kept moving in spite of discouragement. 
And as they moved, as they responded to the exhortation, God gave them a vision of what he was up to. And my guess is that when they understood what he said in verse 6 and on, in a little while I'll once more shake the heavens and the earth. I'll shake the nations. The desired of all nations will come, perhaps reference to the Messiah. I will fill this house that looks so pathetic to you now. I'll fill it with glory. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The glory of this house will be greater than the glory of the former house. wonder if I have their tears. What if they got revitalized in their old age? And I wonder if they had something to offer because they cried so much that the young folks who only laughed couldn't quite say with the same level of power. May I suggest, very simply as I wrap up my comments, that there may be three stages that you and I are going to have to go through, and we've gone through first two already for most of us, I guess. Three stages that we have to go through for the glory to be released, for us to become the elder shepherds that we're talking about, three stages that I think are typical in the development of Christian ministers, Christian leaders, Christian servants, Christian shepherds. If we're going to be part of the answer to our Lord's intention to place shepherds among them, if you and I are going to become those elder shepherds, then maybe there's three stages we have to go through, I'd suggest. The first stage is the stage of idealism. Defined as a sense of calling. I so thoroughly enjoyed, it was on the overhead the other night, about... Letterman's ten top reasons why he became a navigator, and nine were funny and we laughed. What was the last one? God told me to do it. God called me. That's why you're navigators. You had a sense of calling. Idealism. I'm not criticizing it at all. It's wonderful. But it's a stage that's going to have to yield to a different level of maturity. Idealism, I say this is characterized by several things. It's characterized often in early years by great blessing and real encouragement. As you begin your ministry, and this isn't universal, of course, there's other stories, but oftentimes as the ministry begins, there's good things that happen, and, and, and you start, the zeal just carries you, and, and good things happen, which somehow internally you expect to only get better. Great blessings accompany the beginnings almost a honeymoon sort of a thing. A second characteristic of the stage of idealism, I suggest, is that what is emphasized over everything else is knowledge and gift. What do I know and what can I do? Seminaries graduate their seniors by giving preaching awards, which basically says, you know how to do it and you're gifted. You'll go far. And the guy that wins the preaching award gets the choice pulpit. And he goes out to preach his heart out. Idealism. Things are going well. He's learned. He's been trained. He's gifted. He's been called. Things are good. Third characteristic is something is held on to that makes that person distinctive. A basis, sometimes false, for seeing themselves as special. We so long to be unique, and if we haven't learned the uniqueness that is definitional to our being, then we come up with some other uniqueness that sets us apart and we want to be unique and we emphasize our distinctives in a way that sets us apart and makes us feel very special. It's typical of this stage of idealism. In the stage of idealism, certain things are just not faced at all, at least not very fully, lip service perhaps, but not realistically. There's a denial of how ugly our motives can be. In the stage of idealism, we're not very honest about the real motivation as we get behind a pulpit. We're not really aware of how self-centered our motives can be as we enter a certain ministry. We're not aware of our ugly motivations sometimes. That's a typical thing of the first stage. 
other thing we're not aware of is how terribly painful life can be because we haven't experienced that much of it in the stage of idealism. And because we've not seen the depths of our ugliness or the depths of the painfulness of life, the third thing we tend to deny is how, 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 how confusing God can be. We've reduced life to a package. One of the things that you and I do with our passion to explain is to reduce the mystery of life to something manageable, and that includes God. God that's reduced to a package. Here's how to do whatever it is we're called to do. Here's the package. Here's the procedure. Let's do it. Typical of idealism. And God gets much good out of it. Second stage, I call the stage of disillusionment or disappointment. As the stage of idealism yields, as years continue to disillusionment and disappointment, a season of conflict. If idealism is a sense of calling, then disappointment is a season of conflict. Marked by three things. If you're in the stage of disappointment, what you're aware of is that, number one, things go wrong that you can't control. Unexpectedly. And you become aware that what goes wrong that's most painful, now listen carefully to this, what goes wrong that's most painful is that certain relationships that you thought were never going to have tensions develop tensions. You have no idea how to fix them. Some people you just don't get along with and you thought it was not, never going to happen that way. There are certain struggles that just don't develop as you expected. and You say one day, how did we get here? We planned to be here and now we're here. We got on the plane to go to Bermuda and how did we end up in Greenland? We're not prepared for this. We have our bathing suit. We haven't got our snowshoes. How did we get here? This isn't what I bargained for. The stage of disillusionment kind of is introduced by that, and it goes on with the second mark, that sometimes temptations to sin become stronger. Because we haven't yet experienced the depths of the solace of God, we're we're more aware of the confusion and the pain, and relief is so easy through sin. You see, Satan has a trump card. He does offer relief from pain right now. There's pleasures in sin for a season. If you drop off the phrase for a season, it's a good deal. But with the phrase for a season, it makes it a very bad deal. But for a time, the confusion and the agony, and I'm not sure who I am anymore. I thought I was this, and I thought I was going in this direction, but the church asked me to leave. The whole thing fell apart, and I'm so sick of churches, and I'm so disillusioned with Christians and all the politics, and the and I'm trying to spend time with God, and I can't find Him. I don't know where He is. Let's get a drink. I'm in a hotel room. Let me just press the button. It only costs seven bucks. I can afford it. The temptation to sin gets stronger. The third characteristic of this season is joy seems to be foreign. It's a loss of joy. Life is just hard. The stage of disillusionment, marked by those three things. And what's hidden during that stage? Now listen carefully to this. What's hidden during the stage of disillusionment is this how giving we can be in the middle of unresolved pain. You don't understand that. How meaningful life can be even when we can't explain it. And how sustaining God can be. As Christians go through stage two, Disillusionment, things are going wrong, temptation, sin gets worse, we try to resist. Private sins here and there nobody knows about, loss of joy, life is just hard. I don't know how I can give anymore, I've had it, life is not meaningful, God, where's your comfort? In the middle of all that, 
that's where, at that point, you set the stage to whether you're going to become an elder shepherd or not. At that point, you make choices that will determine whether you're going to be an elder shepherd. You can yield to discouragement and quit. You don't finish well. What a tragedy. Let me tell you what's more common. You try to recover the joys of stage one. And you become rigid. You settle for less. You go back to what you could do good and you stay with it. Now you become rigid in your approach to life. You look for some way to recapture the excitement. You look for some way to do what you once were good at. You look for some way to capture what was once yours. Lewis, again it is Lewis, makes the comment that it's a wonderful joy to see a little child, a little baby, a two, three-year-old toddler splashing about in a wading pool, but how horrible to see an adult doing the same thing. And when somebody in stage two goes back to try to recapture stage one, it's an adult going to a wading pool. Wonderful for children, inappropriate for adults because there are deeper joys that belong to adulthood and not to childhood. Third thing you can do in stage two, either you can yield to discouragement and quit, don't finish well, or two, you can compromise and just say, all right, I'm, I'm going to handle this, I'm hurting, but I know I'm good at this, here's how you do the ministry, here's what you do, I'm going to do it, don't ask any more questions, I can handle it, I'm pretty good at this, that's what I'm going to do, don't bother me. Now you're back in stage one. Or thirdly, you can admit your brokenness and you despair and you can begin asking the big questions of life. Come before God in all of your confusion. I'll never forget at my brother's funeral six, seven years ago when Buck Hatch, professor at Columbia Bible College, some of you know him, he spoke at one of the memorial services when Bill was killed in the airplane crash. And My dad was 79 and Buck at the time was 80. He had lost one of his four sons a year or so before to a heart attack and he knew the pain. Big auditorium at CBC, my parents and I and Phoebe, Rachel and others were sitting in the front row and Buck, this elderly gentleman, looked at my father, roughly the same age, and he said this, looking right at my dad, never forget it. He said, in the middle of life's hardest times, don't be afraid to ask the hardest questions that come out of your soul. But don't expect answers, expect to find God. You bring the big questions. But if in the middle of the brokenness and the confusion and the despair and the pain, if in the middle of all that, if at that time you stay in the Word, if at that time you stay in prayer, and if at that time, maybe just as importantly, you stay with one person who can spiritually direct you, one person who knows your struggle, one person who hears that you're so confused, you're so despairing, you're not sure if you can get up the next morning. One person who hears like Henry Nowen went to Pear Thomas and he was embraced and the demons of despair were expelled. If there's one person you can stay with as your mentor, as your shepherd. Folks, you see, if we're on the lookout for that, maybe we can do that for somebody. And if so, stage three develops. From idealism, a sense of calling, through disappointment, a season of conflict, to vision. Stage three, the recovery of passion. The marks of an elder shepherd. A passionate vision. After weeping over how pathetic the temple looked. Marked by three things. Marked by the realization the the richest blessings aren't always visible. The richest blessings aren't always dramatic. 
and you begin to be thrilled, not about the big ministries and how many Bible studies and how many. Those are good things, but you begin to be thrilled with the fact that something actually poured out of you that touched this one life, and you, well, that sustains you for ten years. You wrote a good letter to your buddy. And he said, I felt so safe. I'm going to fly over and just chat with you. And you don't feel proud. You feel thrilled. I actually related like Jesus. You actually are drawn to the grace of God because of me. Boy, that's big time. The world looks at it and says, can't see it. And we go, that's phenomenal. Our kid actually asked us questions about life and said something like, Dad, I've been married five years now. It's really tough. How have you managed to hang in there with Mom? And you go, that'll last me a decade. That's even asked the question. Maybe my seminar attendance is down, my books aren't selling, but my boy asked me a question like that. That'll keep you going. The richest blessings aren't big and splashy. Second characteristic of the third stage, I would suggest, is that you realize that knowing Christ matters more than ministry. And you know the hunger in your soul to commune, to rest with with Christ. And you read books like The Return of the Prodigal by Henry Nouwen and you're, you begin to cry as you realize that Henry Nouwen captured from that Rembrandt painting perhaps the meaning of the parable of the son who essentially by taking the early inheritance said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want the blessings now that would come if you'd already died. So I wish you were dead. Let me have the money and Dickens with you. And then he comes back and what does his dad do? We were in St. Petersburg a while ago and we saw that painting, the Rembrandt painting, Return of the Prodigal, that now and sat in front of for, what, four days, I think he said, or something like that. Some long period of time that he inspired the book. And what he said from the painting that I thought was profound, one of Rembrandt's masterpieces is, and you've read the book, some of you, and you've seen the painting, I know numbers of you. One of the things he said was this little, this young man is kneeling in front of the father in Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal. And the father, this tired, wise man, full of wrinkles and age, has his arms on this boy's back as he's kneeling inside of his father. And one hand of the father is a hand that you'd expect in an aged man, just wrinkled and gnarled and old. The hand that's seen suffering and has wisdom and has the power to love well. And that hand is on his son's back. The other hand is the hand of a delicate young woman. It's the love of a nurturing mother and the love of a wise father pulling this boy into his breast. And now an experience that with Bear Thomas. And you become aware as you get into stage three that there's, there's a hunger to be held like that. And you begin to say, you know, if I'm going to have power to do what God has for me to do for the rest of my life, if I'm going to finish well, I've got to take the position of falling into the arms of my Savior. William Hendrickson, the old Bible commentator, is now with the Lord. When he was an elderly man, he was preaching in a church that I was involved with, and I overheard him say at one point, he says, you know, I just don't think I quite get the gospel yet. I know it's Jesus loves me, this I know, but I can't quite grasp it. And as a young kid, I heard him say that, and I thought, well, I, I do. I mean, what's your, what's your problem? My goodness. What does it mean to just yield to that hunger within you to, to know just to know Christ and to realize that the person that's been with Christ is the person that pours. Did I share it last night or was I sharing with a friend this morning? If it's a repeat from last night, forgive me. I think I shared it with a friend this morning, but 
when I was with Jim Houston, this man that I've mentioned several times, the 75-year-old gentleman who I, I don't worship because nobody's worshiped but God, but I deeply respect him. With him a year or so ago, and we were an hour in a living room of his daughter's home and chatting before I went to the guest room to go to bed for the night, and we were chatting till 11 o'clock at night, and after I left him, I think I mentioned this last night, didn't I? I just fell on the floor in my room. I don't do that too often. After being with him for an hour, and I, I literally fell on the floor and just wept involuntarily. And what I said to the Lord was, Lord, I'll pay any price to know Jesus the way he does. See, that's a shepherd. Who's wept after time with you? Because you know that's what matters more than anything else in the world. That's stage three. Last characteristic the deepened longings for closeness creates a great loneliness. The deepens, deepened longings for incredible intimacy create a great loneliness that gives you hope for what's ahead. And now you're transformed. You're purified, as John puts it, by the hope of what's coming your deepest longings for closeness that you're aware of and you realize, you know, I've been married for 30 years, I've been married for 40 years and I love my wife and we're close and I love my husband and I love my kids and I love my friends and there's a, there's a closeness but there still isn't that fullness of Trinitarian relating Jesus. You pray that we'd be one. God, we're, we're moving in that direction but it's, it's not there yet. And God, I want so much to have. I was built for connection. I was built for relationship. I was built for something that I haven't yet fully tasted. God, I've had wonderful tastes, but God, it's not the whole meal. God, it's coming. And you begin to look ahead and you become otherworldly in a very legitimate sense. You begin thinking about what's coming and as you think about what's coming, it allows you to do what perhaps is most difficult. To stay deeply involved in relationships that don't touch you as deeply as you want to be touched. When our son was going through the hardest times, you know what my biggest temptation? I wanted to find some way to love him less because it hurt so bad. And I thought, I think I could make it if I just don't care quite so much. But as long as I cared, I couldn't stop crying. The elder shepherd is one who makes it to stage three, if you will. And the third characteristic is he's aware of, he or she is aware of longings for intimacy that the best marriage doesn't quite satisfy. That the best friendship doesn't quite do. That the relationship with Christ, the best relationship of all, because of us, not him, isn't all that it could be. And we're just getting moments. And, and then we say, but it's coming. Can I tell you one quick story and I'm going to end. I'm over time, I know. A buddy of mine years ago, it's an old story, some of you heard it before. A buddy of mine, it occurs to me now. A buddy of mine told me when he was a 10-year-old kid, he lived in a family that was just a squabbling, angry, miserable, nasty family. And dinner table was a miserable hour where they either wouldn't talk or they'd yell at each other. And this kid sat there and just endured all the screaming and hollering and nasty comments and jabs and sarcasm and this horrible family unit, this 10-year-old kid with a couple of siblings and dad and mom just yelling at each other all the time. Down the street there was an old home with a big old porch and this boy had an occasion walk by this home at dinner hour and he had heard that family sitting at the dinner table and he had heard the sounds of laughter. A family which got along. And he got in the habit of doing something. He would excuse himself from his dinner table as soon as he could without being yelled at. 
go out the door and his parents really didn't care where he was going, but he'd leave the dinner table. He'd go down to this home, a couple of houses down, big old porch with a space underneath, and he'd crawl underneath the porch and he'd sit there in the darkness and the dampness and he'd sit and listen to the family laugh. He told me that story years ago. I was with this fellow just a month or so ago. He told me the story years ago and I remember saying to him, can I, can I take the memory and push it into a bit of an imagination? He said, what do you mean? I said, can you imagine what would happen if the father and the family kind of knew that you were out there somehow and sent his son who came out crawled under the porch with you and said, come on in. And you were, I don't think I fit there. I'm used to this. No, no, you're welcome. Come on in. And I pushed the imagination further and I said, you came to the dinner table, this happy family, and it was like, yeah, come on in. Hey, have a seat. And you were just kind of nervous. You didn't know if you fit and you reached to get your glass of water and you spilled it. You right away were afraid you were going to get yelled at and Everybody just laughed warmly, not derisively, and the dad said, get him a clean shirt and more water. This kid to have a great time. As I kind of pushed the image, this guy just began to weep. He said, that's what I want. I said, well, that's what's coming. See, a lot of us right now are sitting under the porch. But the banquet is soon ours to enjoy. And the elder shepherd doesn't live for today. The elder shepherd doesn't demand the satisfactions that are going to be then, now. And therefore, the elder shepherd will stay involved in relationships that don't do for our souls what we want. But the glory of being able to represent the God that we've placed our full hope in is going to start seeping out a little bit. And maybe we'll shepherd one or two people and invite them to the table. Father, I pray that you'll excite us, arouse us, with what's ours. Lord, it's one thing to sit and listen to a too long talk and another thing to chat with somebody tomorrow and to have the whole thing just go up in smoke and haven't got a clue what to say and just feel so inadequate. And to try to offer advice and to have people get bored and to say something that sounds very biblical and to have them yawn and to say something insightful and have it come out rather foolish and to give somebody a hug and have them be stiff. To cry with them and have them look at us with Confusion. Father, this doesn't work too good. And yet help us to realize that you have actually given us something that that could be released a little bit more. Give us a vision for what we could mean to each other and to others following along behind. And in our deepest tears at the temple looking so pathetic, give us the courage to believe that in our confusion, in our discouragement, that An incredible day is coming that will make Solomon's temple nothing in comparison. And because of that, we, we can hope and relax and demand nothing from this life and simply give whatever is within. And maybe we can learn to yield what you've put within us and release the good that's in us to arouse your work and somebody else and to release their good, not to fix them up or to shape them up, but to release them to be who they really are, who you've made them to be. Father, whatever has been said that's of you, deepen it, whatever has been said that just is not from you, help us to forget it quick. We yield ourselves to your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. 
to subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.